0: This season and this episode of Telehell is dedicated to the memory of our good friend David Downs. Were it not for him, there would not be a Tele-Hell. Thank you, David. Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to Telehel. You can't think of hindsight without first thinking of the number 2020. Coincidentally, you also can't think of 2020 without thinking of ABC News, the people who brought you the long-running news magazine of the same name. Since its debut in 1978, the program's original intention was to become a more slicked up, glossy version of what was already considered the granddaddy of TV news magazines, CBS's 60 Minutes. But where 60 Minutes specialized in hard-hitting investigations, revealing celebrity interviews, and an old curmudgeon complaining about little bits and pieces of life, 2020 tried to be its own thing minus the curmudgeons. And for a majority of its 41 years in counting on the air, it was able to hold its own against various competition thanks to anchors Hugh Downs and Barbara Walters leading the way. Which begs the question: why are we? A program about television failures and the many sins it casts, even wasting a minute of time talking about a venerable TV institution. Because believe it or not, one of the crowning achievements of the news division of ABC almost died before it got a chance to live the long life it would eventually lead. With an opening night so critically panned that it almost put a TV visionary out of a job and put the rest of the network on the brink of the gates of Tower Hell. To fully understand the story of 2020 and its troubled origins, we must first take the time to talk about one of the all-time greats in the world of television. And unlike our patron saint, Fred Silverman, this individual has had a much better track record when it came to cranking out the hits. Rune Arledge began his career as a production assistant during the infancy of television at NBC Studios in New York, first working behind the scenes at the local affiliate, and then moving up to the network itself. Through a stroke of luck, Arledge was able to segue himself from the Mighty Peacock to the then-fledgling sports department of the even more fledgling ABC network, which in the late 50s, early 60s, was seen as something of a joke among peers in the entertainment industry. But because television was still seen as sort of a blank canvas to the creative people who were weary of the motion picture industry, there was plenty of room to grow. And thanks to Arledge's instincts, the ABC Sports Department became a powerhouse throughout the 60s, thanks in no small part to the network luring away college football rights, followed by the creation of a long-running, wide world of sports a weekly showcase of all other sports that weren't a part of any of the major leagues, but still promising us. The thrill of victory
1: and the agony of defeat.
0: The success of the program through the decade made ABC an unlikely contender to cover television's biggest sports event outside of football, the Summer and Winter Olympic Games, which they did from the summer of 1968 to the winter of 1988 except for the 1980 Moscow games which NBC bought the rights to and found that they had no use for. But that's another story. With all of the success they suddenly found themselves with in the 60s, Arledge and ABC Sports cemented its position as a sports leader in 1970 with the creation of NFL Monday Night Football. first ever regularly scheduled major league sports program to air to a national audience in prime time. Suffice to say, the program was a hit right out of the gate, and it made stars not just out of the people who played the game, but mostly out of the motley crew of sportscasters, Frank Gifford, formerly of the New York Giants, Dandy Don Meredith, formerly of the Dallas Cowboys and soon to be super Train victim, and the Mountbet Roard, roared, New York sportscaster, Howard Cosell. It was due to the success of the Monday Night Dream Team, as well as more intensive coverage of baseball, college sports and the Olympics, including the infamous 1972 tragedy in Munich, that helped vault ABC Sports into the stratosphere and rune Arledge into a new position. In 1977, it was decided that Arledge would take over as president of ABC News in the hopes that he would do for that department what he had done for sports over the past two decades. Problem was, the ABC News department in 1977 was probably the biggest butt of all jokes in the TV industry, thanks to the near-fatal team-up of Barbara Walters and Harry Reisner as evening news anchors. Arledge was not to be deterred by all the setbacks that besieged the news department. Reisner was out of the picture. Walters got reassigned to cover special projects. And after a major staff reorganization, as well as streamlining how the news was presented, the newly rechristened World News Tonight premiered in 1978. Not to an immediate success, but successful enough that there was now a suitable alternative to watching Walter Cronkite and John Chancellor every night. Which brings us right back to our subject. Around the same time Arledge was looking to breathe new life into the network's evening newscast, he also had plans to fit a weekly news magazine into the mix. And while 60 Minutes became the gold standard of long-form news reporting, Arledge and the network could only hope for either gold plating or sterling silver, something that, not unlike World News Tonight, would be considered a viable alternative to what was already established. Yet at the same time... They tried very hard not to be just another imitator. But what would the show be if not a knockoff of the other network's genuine article? After all, you can't just throw things together and call it a show. Things had to be planned out first. Key of which was the show's mission statement. To give a crystal clear vision of the world we live in, whether it be through current events, investigative reports, revealing interviews, goings on in the worlds of arts and science, or simply something that can make you think a little. That crystal clear vision was emblematic of something that optometrists knew about since time began. Simply put, the show was to be known as 2020. The reporters they gathered for the first episode were a who's who of up and coming journalists who would have much better success further down the line. Starting with an eager team of veteran TV reporters, including Sylvia Chase, Dave Marish, and Sander Vinoker, and a young, brash, but intrepid investigative reporter by the name of Geraldo Rivera. Oh, goody. We just started our to-do list for season three. Duly noted. Anyway, the team was then boosted by the addition of Tom Hovig, former director of New York's Metropolitan Museum of Art, and soon to be science icon Dr. Carl Sagan, whose Cosmos program was still two years away from its debut. Now that Arledge had his team of reporters assembled, there was still the matter of who would run the show as executive producer. ABC recommended to Arledge the network's chief in charge of late-night and morning programming, Bob Shanks, who during his tenure was able to unseat the Today Show in the ratings for the first time ever thanks to the creation of Good Morning America, which at the time was considered by the network as an entertainment program as opposed to a news program. So, in that regard, Shanks had very little experience running a news program. Nevertheless, Arledge had enough faith in Shanks to allow him to run the program with total autonomy, and this caveat from Arledge, don't be 60 minutes. Shanks took up the challenge when it came time to hire the two people who wound up hosting the show and introducing the segments. First a North Carolina-based former editor for Esquire magazine named Harold Hayes. While he did work for one of the most prestigious publications ever printed, Hayes had zero TV experience. Complicating matters was Hayes' insistence that the staff be filled with some of his former contemporaries in the print industry. The notion being, according to Arledge's memoirs, that who better to run a TV magazine than somebody who ran an actual magazine? Nevertheless, going outside of the box was the show's MO, so Hayes was hired not only as a host, but also as the program's senior producer. The show's second host was more of a raging yang compared to Hayes's sober yin, and similar to Hayes, he too had a primary background in magazines. Robert Hughes was the Australian-born art critic for Time magazine and according to Arledge's memoirs, was a hard-drinking man's man who happened to be an immensely talented writer. Also, to Arledge's recollection, he couldn't understand a word he was saying, even when he was sober. Nevertheless, Shanks felt confident that Hayes and Hughes would become household names. Or at least at first. Since this was a news program to be, one thing that needed to happen first before anything could be done on the air was to have a proof of concept. In this case, a 20-minute pitch reel was produced featuring Hayes and Hughes essentially telling ABC executives just what they were in for when the show would formally debut. And so, in the spring of 1978, the pitch was made to the network. After a short tease of the stories, we get our opening credits and roll call, followed by the introduction of Hayes and Hughes letting us know what we're in for. Good evening, I'm
2: Hayes. And I'm Hughes. Tonight, a 2020 look at the Pinto gas tank scandal involving 500,000 cars. We'll talk with one of the victims.
1: Ten years ago, Bobby Baker was Lyndon Johnson's number one wheeler dealer and it landed him in jail. Tonight, he tells 2020's Dave Marish why wheeling dealing is still as American as apple pie.
2: Five years ago, Flip Wilson quit playing Geraldine to play father to his own children.
1: Tonight, he tells 2020 how much more it hurt him than it did them. And if you've recently been asked, or more likely told, thank you for not smoking, 2020 is prepared tonight, whether you smoke or don't, to tell you your rights and how to stay out of fights.
2: Would you really get into a physical brawl over a I'll pick you up little... and
1: throw you out by the seat of your pants in about two seconds. Over a cigarette?
2: That's right. A silly cigarette? That's
0: right. You're taxing yourself. Of the pieces that were teased, only the Flip Wilson interview would make it to the official first broadcast, but we'll get to that piece in a moment. First up, we get a look at the week that was, in a rather tongue-in-cheek way, simply known as The Wayward Week, and for those of our listeners who weren't born in 1978, consider this your Cliff Notes for this week's History Class.
1: And here comes Sun Power, the hottest new solution to the energy crisis, we hope. This wayward week turned
2: four days into one day and then called all four of them Sunday, a nationwide festival aimed at promoting solar energy. Jimmy Carter had to deliver his Sunday speech in a Rocky
1: Mountain drizzle. And then it was off to California to meet the enemy. Welcome, said Governor Brown. And nice to see you, said President Carter. And see you later.
0: Like in You'll notice during the segment just how much forced banter is going on between Hayes and Hughes. While Shanks insisted to Arledge that the chemistry between the two was through the roof and testing, something about their interactions together felt about as shoehorned in as one of those so-called surprise cameos that you see on SNL. You know what I'm talking about. The kind where a performer is playing a famous person, and then that same famous person comes out for real to call them out on it. Kinda like that, but with banter. Two particular gems stick out in this segment. There's this. And the
1: top book, The Complete Book of Running by James Fix. By the way, Hayes, how's your jogging? Four city blocks today, Hughes. (laughs) Not terribly impressive. And also this. Ah, yes, another wayward week. Well, at least this tape
0: didn't have an 18-minute gap on it here, Hayes. So we're off to a rousing start so far. Hazen Hughes then goes on to recap for the ABC executives who have just woken up after their battle with narcolepsy what the rest of the show's structure will be.
2: Each week, 2020 will open, as you've just seen, with a comedy tease, our main titles and music, a billboard of our major stories, and the Wavered Week recap of the week's top newsmakers and events. Then, starting here on the program, there will be four major stories in each hour. First, the
1: lead story. We go after that story in detail with all the technology at hand and the full worldwide resources of ABC News. Our next major story
2: is an investigative report. These investigative reports are national in scope and importance, stories that touch your lives.
1: Our third major story is about people, people that
0: people are talking about or soon will be. We're then treated to a montage of stories that may or may not have aired on future editions of the show. Everything from investigative reports to people in the news, which is still pretty standard stuff in comparison to what 60 Minutes originated. But it certainly looked a lot more streamlined here. Hayes and Hughes continue.
2: Sometimes here at home base, you'll see Hughes and me with our correspondents talking to them directly about the stories they're doing. Correspondents like Geraldo Rivera. Hi, Geraldo. How are you doing? Pretty good. Good evening, gentlemen. How are you doing? Good. Nice to have you here. Geraldo's working on special reports for 2020. What's the story of the moment?
3: Ferrell's. M- uh, meaning wild people wild people feral people as dr alan beck of the new york bureau of animal affairs told me these are people who in the midst of civilization decide to turn wild they live as wild people right in our cities let's take a look at it
0: let's nod and say we did besides that's not even a part of the first episode anyway that and suffice to say there's only so much geraldo we can take in a sitting and there's much more with him coming up In the meantime, Hayes and Hughes introduce the arts and science segments.
2: Our last major story is a window on all the other wonders of the world. The arts, education, business, trends and customs, medicine and science. People you don't know, but you ought to know about for the unsung wonders of their daily lives.
0: Which is then followed by an introduction to a filler piece called Words, where the TV viewer is spared a look inside a dictionary. Words.
2: Avuncular, of pertaining to or resembling an uncle, especially a benevolent uncle.
0: Thanks for that. You don't get that kind of coverage on CNN. This next potential segment, I'm just going to let play out and have speak for itself.
1: And we'll be hearing weekly from a couple of anonymous friends, cry and whisper. You don't see them, but I'm sure you'll get the message... Those new boots?
2: Brand new. Ralph Lauren. Like them? A
1: sneakers man,
2: myself. Well, some places you just can't go in sneakers. That you can in boots? Boots go anywhere. Everywhere. But the French are getting a new Marianne. Brigitte Bardot is being defaced? Replaced. By somebody in boots. Boots always. Except in bed. I'm not in the bed. I'm on the bed.
0: Yeah, your guess is as good as mine, folks. Anyway, Hayes and Hughes wrap things up with a piece called American Short Story, where we take a look into a small piece of Americana via a random average American, such as this set of brothers who rent out coffins for a living. You heard me. I work for
3: IBM during the day. At night, I rent coffins. We rent the coffins out for a basic price of $50 and that includes the coffin, flowers, candelabras, and uh, everything you might think of having with a coffin. We'll take cash. We we also accept Master Charge, Bank AmeriCard, American Express.
0: After that, the pitch is mercifully wrapped up.
2: The hour always ends up back at home base for 2020's last look and your first
1: at the week ahead. A feature that tells you, for example... When President Jimmy Carter's going to be in trouble with Congress again, even before he knows. Or, as another example, why Mrs. Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis will not be attending any showings of the Greek tycoon. And then he'll say... I'm Hayes. And I'm Hughes. Good night. Courage, we're all in this together.
0: Now, if you were an ABC executive, what would your first instinct be? Would you go to Rune Arledge to try to warn him not to go through with it after what you just saw? Or would you adopt some sort of train wreck mentality where you fear to watch, yet you cannot turn away? For the majority of those this was screened to, they decided to metaphorically stick a car on the railroad tracks with people inside it. 2020 got the green light, and it was decided for the program to be a weekly summer series premiering in June of 1978. Followed by it being a monthly program during the following fall, until ultimately becoming a weekly series permanently in 1979. Of course, this is telehell. Nothing ever comes that easy. And we'll see how difficult that first show was after the break. <coughs>
1: Hale. And I'm Robert Hughes. We're the hosts of the new ABC Weekly News magazine, 2020. Every Tuesday, we're going to cut through the blur of events and take a 2020 look at the issues, people, and ideas that really matter to you. We hope you'll join us. See
0: 2020. news Tuesday at 10, 9 central and Mountain on ABC. June 6th, 1978. Greece was the number one movie in the country. And its supplemental soundtrack song, You're the One That I Want, was at the top of the charts. And at 10 p.m., 9 central and mountain, the rest of the country got to say hello to those future household names, Hayes and Hughes.
2: Harold Hayes and Robert Hughes.
1: I'm Hayes. I'm Hughes. And Robert Hughes is not exactly a household name, Hughes. Where do you come from? Tell us about yourself. You're Australian. Born in Sydney about 40 years ago. Started off as a journalist there, sort of art critic, political cartoonist. All-purpose literary grace monkey. And then where? Uh, To Europe. Studied art in Italy for a few years and then uh, moved to England and um, did some work for the BBC there and freelanced. And then I was hired out of there by Time Magazine about eight years ago and so came here. Slipped into the country surreptitiously. Uh, Yep, under a forged uh, talent. Now, how about you? Where'd you get that fancy foreign accent? From North Carolina Hughes. We all talk
2: that way down there. (laughs) I started there many years ago, came to New York about 25 years ago. Been a magazine editor a lot of the time, a lot of that time at Esquire wrote a book on East Africa in the last couple of years and been concerned about conservation. Well, different
0: work now, let's get to it. We then get a rundown of this week's stories, including the aforementioned Flip Wilson interview, the tale of a 20-something who knows how to build a nuclear bomb, an interview with former California Governor Jerry Brown, and another interview with Senator Ted Kennedy on the anniversary of his brother Robert's assassination. 60 Minutes never did anything live, so 2020 had at least one advantage fresh out the gate with those two interviews. These segments were preceded by a Geraldo-led investigation about Greyhound racing. But first, a look at the Wayward Week.
1: This Wayward Week began with a bang
2: which resulted in one less Greek oil tanker. Engineers blasted the crippled ship right out of the English Channel to prevent an oil spill from fouling nearby beaches.
3: It
1: was that kind of a week. But no matter whose face is on the coin, the dollar just ain't buying what it used to. Inflation hit double figures last week, with meat prices out of sight. And you can blame the hamburger for that. Farmers can't keep up with America's hunger for burgers. Imagine living and dying to become a hamburger. Well, as we said, Hayes, another way of we.
0: And there's that forced banter again. Maybe because the ABC station affiliates pioneered the happy talk dynamic thanks to the creation of the Eyewitness News format across the country, they thought it would work here. Instead, it almost felt as natural as the back and forth between Coy and Vance Duke. It just didn't seem right for some reason. Moving on to our lead story, Geraldo takes a look at the ins and outs of Greyhound racing and what it takes to raise them.
3: Harold, I don't believe that you have to be an animal crazy, so-called animal crazy, or even a vegetarian, to believe that the way we treat animals is a reflection of the way we treat each other. In this case, the greyhound industry says that their dogs need live bait. This report will establish that that simply is not so.
0: For the most part, it's no different than a typical 60 Minutes piece giving us journalism's five W's and one H in a frank and honest manner. But perhaps the story might have been a little too frank as there was one particular part of the story that not only raised a lot of red flags at the network, but also drew a lot of iron disgust from Rune Arledge, who in his memoirs considered the piece to be one of the three worst of the evening. The moment in question came when graphic footage was shown, where one of the Greyhounds was seen tearing apart a live rabbit for training purposes. Wait a minute, hold on a second! Didn't we establish rules that we wouldn't cover anything death-related? I mean, I know that was largely meant for humans who got killed on live TV, but certainly all living creatures fall under the same umbrella, right? Am I right? Better call the boss to be sure. Devil's office. How can we hurt you today? Hey, it's the telehel narrator. Is the boss around? I have a question to ask him. No. He's in the middle of a meeting with Rudy Giuliani. They're trying to negotiate a fair price for his soul, so he can avoid jail time. I can take a message. Well, I'm working on this episode, and there's a lot of live death involved in one segment, but it's an animal death instead of a human one, and I was curious if that would be a violation of the rules we established in the top six things we won't review. Is that it? No problem, honey. I can actually get an instant answer from him while he's working. Stand by. <coughs> okay, the big guy says, they're your rules, do what you want. And if you ever bug him during a meeting again, you'll get double eternity. Anything else today? I think that's it. Talk to you next time I need a plot device. Take care, honey. Okay. Even though I personally feel uncomfortable with what I'm about to play, it is kind of integral to the rest of the story. So for this instance, we're gonna go with it. Just giving you a fair warning, however, even the audio of what's happening is highly disturbing.
3: It's called Coursing, C-O-U-R-S-I-N-G. And it's the grim side of Greyhound racing.
0: I mean, Jesus. This is how you hit the ground running on a new TV show? Show a rabbit getting torn apart by dogs? Not only that, but the people who train them seem to adopt a cavalier attitude towards the practice.
2: the jackrabbit's good for nothing. It's a rotten, it's a pest. Only thing I'd say about a Jack Rabbit that good for is to eat a farmer's crop up.
0: It gets worse. As Geraldo continues to describe the events, we're treated, if you could call it that, to images of dead rabbits in a garbage can, among other atrocities.
3: In theory, coursing is also a sport. The rabbit can escape, if it can outrun the charging dogs and reach a sanctuary located at the far end of the track. In practice, the rabbits don't stand a chance. Most are killed during their first run.
0: Those two faint sounds you hear in the distance, by the way, are members of PETA and the ASPCA collectively passing out and Elmer Fudd getting the boner of the century. The story continues with a thankfully opposing view on live bait.
3: Donnie Work runs a successful greyhound training operation near Modesto, California. He feels the use of live bait is actually counterproductive. Once the dogs chase live rabbits, he told us, they won't want to chase the mechanical rabbit at the track.
0: And if all else fails, they can always use the holy hand grenade to blow the rabbit up. One, two, five! up. Three! The story continues with another opposing viewpoint from a representative of the American Humane Society.
2: It involves a, not only the exploitation of animals, but it's brutal, it's senseless, it serves no purpose whatsoever as far as we're concerned.
0: <sighs> okay, play the Lovejoy clip. <laughs> Now that we got that out of the way, the story continues to go on about all the legal moves that were made to try and ban the practice of coursing in the state of Kansas, as well as all the legal loopholes that were exploited to keep the practice going. So, in order for any action to be done, the Humane Society sought the help of the big guns Kansas Senator and Norm McDonald's Meal Ticket from 1995 to 1996, Bob
2: Dole. What well, I proposed, uh, in fact, uh, today, that we uh, outlaw public coursing, that we prohibit the shipment in interstate commerce of rabbits to be used in public coursing, and we also prohibit uh, intrastate use
0: of wild rabbits for public coursing. In the years since the story aired, hair coursing was declared illegal in 12 states, including Kansas, where the story took place. It is unfortunately still legal in a handful of others, while some other states still have no clear-cut rules in regards to it. So ends the first segment of the show. 2020 is brought to you by the American Express card. Don't leave home without it. We resume with a brief bit
2: of words filler. Words, arcane,
0: mysterious, secret, obscure. And after that bit of vital information, we get to the Flip Wilson piece, which was later declared by Arledge to be the single worst part of the episode, despite the rest of the ABC News crew thinking that it was the best we will let you judge for yourself with as much context as time will allow. Of particular note is this vignette about how Wilson disciplined his children one time, and how one of the kids remained unflappable during the spankings. She
3: said, okay, daddy. So she pulled her pajamas down. So I hit her one time. She said the line. I won't do that anymore. So I hit her a second time. Said the line. I won't do that anymore. So I hit her three times. She said the line. But she hadn't cried yet. So, uh... I'm wondering uh, why is she why is she crying? So I hit her again. She said the line, and
0: uh, I'm still shook that she's not crying. And uh... the recollection of the incident left Wilson so dumbfounded that he wound up sobbing for about 50 seconds worth of dead air, which may have looked dramatic mm. to some, but when you're a new TV show trying to gain mm. interest on your opening night. Almost a minute of near-silence or flat-out nothing happening at all is practically an eternity on the tube. Quite honestly, we don't think the interview was flat-out terrible, just poorly mismanaged. The interview would have been fine if they added a little bit more to that, like what would be next on the horizon for Wilson's career, or maybe an anecdote about something that happened while performing stand-up. Not a model in peace about punishing your kids. She remembers Fortunately, the show shakes us out of a dark place by telling the story of something comparatively lighthearted.
1: Coming up next, a 2020 look at the chance of nuclear terrorism in this country. And at some who've raised the possibilities.
0: If by lighthearted, you mean have your heart and other vital organs lit up by the fires of a nuclear bomb. But first, more pointless words. Words. Exegesis. Critical Explanation or Interpretation? Hughes introduces the stories of the nukes this this way.
1: This cloud has been on our horizon since 1945, when the atomic age began. We've known that war could trigger it, or an accident set it off, and the nuclear nations have done what they could to establish deterrence, and to provide safeguards, in short, to balance the fear. And what if the threat came down to one individual, a single terrorist,
0: lone blackmailer, solo nut, now able to make his own bomb. And who would have guessed that some of the producers of the show was able to turn part of the SNL season two sketch, Jeopardy 1999, into a documentary.
2: In 1981, became first terrorist group to ransom city with plutonium. (laughs) Danny. Who are the young Republicans?
0: (laughs) That's right, go Danny. Of course, that could be a coincidence. The actual story of an average Joe who builds his own dirty bomb goes like this. Building your own nuclear bomb. A fantasy on Spider-Man, but a reality to Joe Owen.
2: His inspiration was not television fantasy. It was science fiction.
1: They held a city for ransom. Uh, I believe it was uh, a germ warfare that
2: they used. But the more I read that book, the way the author came out and explained The feelings of the people at the time, at first they thought it was a prank. It was, you know, nobody could do this. And then he gave a test. I I believe he wiped out a suburb
0: or something. And then they took him serious. Uh, not to knock on the guy being interviewed, but now I have this image in my head of Disney's Goofy doing one of those how-to cartoons with a snooty narrator explaining how to build a warhead. (laughs) Tamp down three teaspoonfuls of uranium and place it in a hermetically sealed, lead-lined vessel. But be sure that no moisture is added to the compound, otherwise you will face a premature explosion and certain radiation. The story goes on. The design, I got basically out of books. They didn't say, this is the way it is. They gave explanations of how it should work, why Certain things happen. While that is a rather captivating story, one has to wonder if there wasn't some sort of silently seething conspiracy theorist out there taking feverish notes as the assailant went on, probably thinking to himself, I can do better than this guy. To sum things up, we get some wise words from former Senator and astronaut John Glenn who at the time led a committee on how nuclear materials should be used in this country. I
2: don't think we've gone overboard on on over-alarming the public. If anything, we've had trouble exciting anyone to do anything about it. Uh, We've been sort of a lone voice in the wilderness, I've felt sometimes here, uh, talking about this problem that I felt was so important,
0: and uh, news people picking up very little on it. Comparatively speaking, this was arguably one of the better segments of the show as it dealt with the important issue of safety in the country. And just like the show's future motto, it would turn out to be a story that touches all of our lives. But unlike the Greyhound and Flip Wilson's stories, it didn't feel as exploitative, and instead acted as a cautionary tale. As threatening as it may be, it was still important to know the threat of nukes coming as close as one's backyard was a highly viable one. So maybe with this diamond in the rough, the show might actually go better than we thought. We do gain more momentum in the next segment when we get a profile of two-time California Governor Jerry Brown, who at the time was in the middle of his first run in the seat, and was seen by some to be a viable challenger to President Jimmy Carter. But not without an opposing view first from a former California Assemblyman, who was asked this question by reporter Sylvia Chase.
2: Mr. Lanterman, what is it with Governor Brown? Is he a bad leader or what? No, I presume it's his superficial approach to... Reality to the extent that if he can make a catchphrase or something that will attract people's attention, that's sufficient for the time being. All they are is sparkling rhetoric to attract attention, a glitter that is not gold, I can assure you.
0: It's comforting to know that some things never change in the political world. On the flip side, reporter Dave Marish seeks a positive spin from none other than Jerry Brown's sister, and still another side of the story from Brown's mother and father via Sandra Vanoker. We then get to the live interview with Brown himself, as well as a slight bursting of his political bubble. People do tend to
1: think ahead, Governor, and we here have done a national poll, which is intended to measure your chances against Jimmy Carter for the Democratic nomination in 1980. And the results came out as 49% of the sampling for Carter, 32% for yourself, and 19% uncommitted. Are
2: you heartened by this news, Governor? Well, I think that gives me uh, full authority to focus here in California. Uh, Obviously, people often say, uh, give a flat no or Sherman-like statement, and I try to be a little more honest because I've heard politicians say one thing and, and just change their mind.
0: The Brown interview is immediately followed up with what some would consider to be a lighter side of the news piece.
1: I wonder how the other fellow feels. He's still got the job, Hughes. Yeah, but there you are, Hayes, those polls, those politicians. How he must long for the antique simplicities of the peanut and the loblolly.
2: We've got
0: just the thing for a change of pace, a little fun. It's an animated segment which we will not be discussing here due to the fact that there's heavy use of the Ray Charles song, Georgia On My Mind, and we don't want to get in trouble off the bat for the new season. But that is second to the fact that the imagery being used against the song is so horrifyingly creepy and beyond description, even by 1978 standards, or even the standards of the website Everything is Terrible, that we're going to take the rare step of linking you to video of it on our social media pages, Twitter and Facebook, at Tele-Hell Podcast. Because quite honestly, this needs to be seen to be believed. The only thing I'll mention about this clip is that it not only involves the song, but it also involves former President Jimmy Carter and several pounds of clay. We can say no more. But be sure to thank us for the nightmare fuel later. The show concludes by going from animated clay figure to human clay figure. Senator Ted Kennedy, who is being interviewed by ABC News correspondent Sam Donaldson, live from Arlington Cemetery as Kennedy is commemorating the 10-year anniversary of Brother Bobby's assassination. While the interview itself went off without a hitch to the viewing audience, behind the scenes was anything but. Reportedly, and according to Arledge's memoirs, Bob Shanks and the show's director were seen in the bowels of the network's master control room trying to figure out how to get the satellite feed up and running so that the interview could be performed live and on time, which had to have been a lot easier than it sounded considering they just wrapped up a live interview moments ago with Jerry Brown. At the same time, this raised a question or two, namely, just how and why were two people who were veterans of the live TV industry so flummoxed as to not figure out how to patch in a feed? Never mind that technology has changed a lot since 1978, but even back then, doing things live should have taken zero effort to accomplish. Suffice to say, despite getting their act together on time, Arledge wasn't amused. Though at least half as amused as he was when he found out the show's original plan to end that night's program. Believe it or not, an expose on the Chappaquiddick incident that all but ruined Ted Kennedy's career. But after realizing that the information that was found was already public knowledge, the story was scrapped. As for the interview itself, it was pretty standard stuff without being too intrusive. I remember him as a brother and the, uh, and the, the good times we spent together. I remember him, obviously, as a,
2: uh, as a father, and those are the, probably the most powerful but uh, memories. But I think today uh, there was the, uh, the sense of uh, hope and spirit that was the, the, both the private and the public person that... Uh, uh, out here this evening and uh, i think the people that have been inspired by him and who continue to, to work in the things that he worked on
0: and on that note the first episode of 2020 grinds to a halt with two final oddities first this bizarre sign off from robert hughes that makes me wonder if dan rather was taking notes that night see
1: you next Tuesday
0: courage we're all in it together and then after the credits roll One last piece of nightmare fuel, as we're treated to another clay animated figure. This one is what I can only assume to be a Dr. Moreau-ish freak show blend between Walter Cronkite and an ostrich inexplicably throwing a paper airplane.
1: And that's the way it is. Tuesday, June 6th, 1978.
0: The show wrapped up. Everybody in the control room breathed a sigh of relief.
1: And there was much rejoicing.
0: All for everybody except rune arledge who we should probably remind you at this point did not want to be involved in day-to-day production as he was already busy working on getting abc's world news tonight off the ground hence passing the duties over to bob shanks when the show went off the air arledge cautioned to shanks quote don't confuse getting off the air on time with a successful show end quote further lamenting that the final verdict would come the same way all opening night bows do, through a combination of the Nielsen ratings and critical reviews. And boy, did they not disappoint. The New York Times called the program dizzyingly absurd, while The Washington Post was far more savage, comparing the program to standing in a supermarket checkout for over an hour staring at the covers of tabloids, as well as calling it, quote, the trashiest stab at candy cane journalism yet made by a TV network. End quote. So where does this opening night misfire fit into the ABCs of telehell? Hindsight may be 2020, but the vision in our nine circles is even clearer than that. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. In spite of the fact that the show has been on the air for well over 40 years as of this recording, this version of it would never see the light of day again, except in YouTube videos. So, by a major technicality, it earns a time slot in the limbo circle. Bob Shanks's vision for the program may have fit in at a different place in time, but for 1978 audiences, it felt like too much too soon. Still, he persisted by throwing a bunch of stuff against the wall to see what would stick. And while some elements did wind up making it to the retooling, there was still way too much to absorb that felt unnecessary in just one hour, thus fulfilling the program's gluttonous desires. The production of the show, as well as the critical and viewer backlash and the subsequent hair pulling that took place at the network resulted in a trifecta of wrath, resulting in the sweeping changes being made the following week. And as a cherry on top, the stories about dogs eviscerating rabbits, Flip Wilson laying the smackdown on his kids, and the kid who could build a nuclear bomb without really trying is more than enough proof we need for the violence circle. For as we all know in the news industry, if it bleeds, it leads. Unfortunately, if you bleed too much, you become anemic. And once that happens, you start to lose a lot of energy. 2020 needed a blood transfusion like there was no tomorrow. Fortunately, help was on the way. The pilot episode of 2020 earns four out of nine circles of telehell. There was no doubt in Arledge's mind that the writing was on the wall after the show premiered. And yet, the program was still committed to continue through the rest of that summer. But Arledge realized that the sooner the changes had to be made, the better. Even if it meant adding one more duty to his already full plate at ABC. The first thing he did was swing the axe at Hayes and Hughes. Arledge wanted to put on somebody with TV experience. By sheer coincidence, Arledge tuned into to Good Morning America after the show aired and noticed that a TV icon was substituting for David Hartman that week, the legendary Hugh Downs, who had semi-retired from TV after a lengthy stint at NBC. After a few quick phone calls, a deal was made for Downs to become 2020's first permanent host and saving the day on at least one front. Hugh Downs away! Next, came the matter of what to do with executive producer Bob Shanks, who in spite of his efforts, gave the audience something it wasn't quite sure how to take. Or, to Arledge's own admission, he, quote, wanted a program that would break every mold, and that's what Shanks did. His only regret is that he, Arledge, didn't get involved sooner, end quote. He did not want ABC News to be embarrassed any further. So from that moment forward, he took charge of the program and installed some of the staff that was already working on World News Tonight to do double duty and clean up the mess. And clean up they did. By the fall of 1979, 2020 became one of the top-rated shows on television week after week, the success of which would continue to grow into the 80s once a deal was made to make Barbara Walters the show's permanent co-anchor Opposite Downs, a team-up that would continue until the 21st century, when a lot of new retooling began. But that's another story. The rest is not only history, but can also be viewed with the same hindsight that helped dissect the first episode's mistakes. The show managed to build on those mistakes, transform the hindsight into foresight for decades to come, and gave future news magazines something to build themselves up towards. Next time on Telehell, what happens when you take one of the most iconic indie films of all time and neuter it for a primetime audience? Well, Cliff, I would really love to stand here and chat forever, but we're getting ready to close. I thought you're open 24 hours. Yeah, but not at night. <laughs> Until then, if it's not a telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. The part of the devil's secretary was played by Joan Bishop. Of course, the usual ways Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehel.libsyn.com, but also these new places, including Castbox.fm, Podtail.com, ListenNotes.com, MyTuner-radio.com, and Blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like, comment, rate, subscribe and share on our social feeds twitter and facebook both at telehell podcast